our one vapor, which is called desflurane, for example, as a dramatic greenhouse gas impact. One OR day, for example, if I use it for seven hours at a rather high fresh gas flow of two liters per minute, which is sadly still the standard for many practicing anesthesiologists, I produce environmental impact as if I drove from the North Cap in Norway all the way down to Cape Town in South Africa. So a distance that Google Maps says will take about 211 hours to drive, I can produce in seven hours of anesthesia time by using that gas. Hey, this is Justin Harvey, your host of the Anesthesia Success Podcast. My wife is an anesthesia resident and I'm a financial planner and I work with anesthesia and pain doctors as my clients. This podcast is designed to help the anesthesia community be informed about their careers, their finances, and more by taking important questions straight to the experts. Thanks for tuning in. Hey, Justin here. This week was a live in-person recording with Dr. Timur Ozelsel at the Spring Azure Conference in Las Vegas, Nevada. Timur and I had a really interesting conversation spanning a couple days, and this interview was recorded on the second day of us hanging out, where Timur discussed what it was like as a physician in Germany, how he left Germany, because shockingly, he couldn't afford to raise his family, even as a boarded anesthesiologist with a couple other subspecialty board certifications. But eventually, he moved to Canada to practice, and in the process, became more informed and eventually impassioned about the environmental impact of medicine and anesthesia specifically. And I'll confess that prior to this interview, I knew nothing about this topic, but I uh, I just happened to meet Timmer and he was sharing more about this and I, I thought it was really interesting. So some of the statistics that he drops in this episode are downright shocking. You'll definitely wanna stay tuned to the end. Hello everyone, welcome to the Anesthesia Success Podcast. This week we're coming to you live from the Spring Azure meeting where I'm sitting down with Dr. Timur Ozelsel and he's kind enough to join me. I met Timur last night along with his colleague Dr. Rakesh Sondakapam where they were sharing with me some of the work that they've been doing in helping us understand the environmental impact of medicine, specifically addressing the practice of anesthesia. The thing that made me interested in interviewing Timur has to do with his pioneering work in this area along with some others where they've been working to spread awareness and work towards developing solutions. Timmer has started the Green Anesthesia Special Interest Group, which is a, a group within ASRA where physicians who are interested in the practice of green anesthesia congregate, share best ideas and best practices, and where him and his colleagues are working to move this work forward. Timmer, thanks very much for sitting down with me today. To start us off, why don't you share a bit about your personal background, since I know that your life and career have spanned several international borders. Well, thank you. So I was born in the U.S. in Louisiana. Um, my parents, uh, Turkish father, German mother, who had met and got married in Turkey, and my parents had come to the U.S. to study. So my father had gotten a scholarship at LSU, and so I was born on campus. But shortly after, at the age of two, we moved to Germany. Um, so it was my father's job that had us move throughout uh, the countries as a child. At the age of six, I moved back to the U.S., and at the age of 10, we moved back to Germany once again. And there, my parents decided to just have us stay within one school system until we finished it. So he declined all further job offers to move away, and so I grew up in Germany. And then for university, I had thought about coming back to the U.S. at the time, but chose to go straight into medical school. In Germany, there was no college system, so I went straight into medical school in Germany. Wow. Um, went through medical school in Germany. And so is that a decision you make as an 18-year-old in exactly. Germany to in go Germany. to medical school. That's, yeah. a big, that's a big decision for a very young man to make. It is, and um, it's something that doesn't bode well for all young people. Yeah. Um, in medicine, for example, after it's a six-year program in Germany, medical school. Uh, so usually after the first two years, you take a first big exam, and that weeds out up to 50% of all the people who have started medicine. Mm. And uh, so wow. yeah, there are a lot of people who find themselves two years into medical school choosing a different path in life. Oh. So... Um, yeah, that sounds utterly devastating. 
For a lot of people it is. It's even worse in law school in Germany because there the big exam is the final exam after five years. Okay. And many, many people fail that and wow. just found that they have now basically spent five years studying law and have to choose a new career at the end of five years. So that is brutal. It is brutal. It's the harsher life of Europe, so to say. Wow, but you made it through. I made it through. Okay. I made it through. And so I then uh, went into residency training in anesthesia in Germany, okay. um, which carried me from the north of Bavaria, Würzburg, down to Munich, okay. uh, where I um, did my residency and also met my wife. And we had children there together. And I completed two fellowships in Germany prior to then choosing to move to Canada, where I have been ever since 2007. Okay, and which fellowships did you do in Germany? In Germany, I did the fellowships of ICU and cardiac anesthesia. Okay. And then when I came to Canada, I still added a regional anesthesia and a liver transplantation fellowship. Okay, excellent. And you came to Canada in, what year was it, 2006? 2007. 2007, okay. And, and what prompted the move to Canada? It's basically the life of a physician in Germany. In Germany, um, physicians really scrape very hard. Um, the income is the bottom third of all of Europe. Um, wow. As a specialist anesthesiologist, wow. I was barely breaking even every month. You know, and with three little children being the sole supplier, uh, provider for my family, I just saw no way in the future to achieve any type of personal or academic goals. Uh, wow. It was basically, it was, it was a struggle to basically pay the bills every month. And so I had no way to even develop further as a doctor or as a person. And uh, it was a rather depressing time for me. And I knew that I had to leave and start somewhere new. That's kind of shocking to me. So is, is Germany on a, like a single payer system? And does that impact the income of physicians or why is that? So as a physician in Germany, you are salaried and there are hierarchies of the salary. However, the salary is the same for physicians all across Germany. Now, the big difference is, is that if you live in an expensive city like Munich, like I did at the time, um, the prices of living, the cost of living is way higher. So if you live in a rural area, you might get by, and especially if you have a double income, you might get by. But in that case, I was the single provider for my wife and my three children. And wow. so that's where I just found that even as a specialist, I could only generate extra money by working overtime. Um, so my overtime was paid and I really worked, like I worked myself half to death oh my and yet goodness. found myself usually on the short end of the stick when it came to just you know accounting at the end of a month. Wow. That is, that is amazing. So you came to Canada for more professional opportunity and to have more financial stability. Exactly. And so the one thing I say that Canada has really given me is the joy of my job back again. You know, I was, I actually was on the verge of quitting medicine altogether in Germany. I'd actually looked into going to business school wow. and getting a second degree in business to just be able to provide for my family. And so the reasons I chose to become a doctor in the first place have surfaced again ever since coming to Canada. So I'm quite happy in my job again. What a wonderful thing. So talk a little bit about that transition and what it was like, what the difference in clinical practice was like between Germany and Canada, if there was any? Well, there's a big difference. Uh, and I think it is the respect that is awarded a physician in Canada is much higher. Uh, in Germany, it's interesting that a lot of people have the perception that physicians are people that make a lot of money, which is not true as I outlined before. And in general, I think while it, Germany is a wonderful country to live in, it's a wonderful country to uh, visit especially, it was quite hard for physicians because on the one hand, you had the perception in society that you were this rich person. And on the other hand, it was not the case at all. So you had a little bit of the scrutiny of society against you. And one of the things which was for me professionally, a little bit of a problem was that in Germany, 
the, you have the pyramidal hierarchy, okay? So you have the professor who's at the top, and then you have the next layer, so to say, of senior physicians in whatever specialty you're at, who usually are also professors. Then you have like a third tier, which are the senior physicians, and then you go down the ladder, so to say, um, until you are in the areas of the residents and junior faculty and junior staff. And the big problem is, on North America, we have more of what I'd call like a swimming pool, where basically all start at one level, and next year they're all at that level, mm -hmm. and the next year they're all at that level, and after four years, when you're a specialist, at least by definition, there is nobody who is above you anymore, okay? Mm. Yeah. On Germany, you will always have that pyramid, meaning if you even want to get to the next level, you will have to leave, like, proverbially a few corpses in your way. You'll have to elbow a few people who are on the same level with you out of the way in order to reach the next level. And so it's a system that doesn't really promote collegiality as much as the North American system does. Mm. So for me, just my personality was a fantastic move to be able to move into this type of system. I'm glad you're able to make that switch. It seems like it's been a great fit for you. I'd love to hear a little bit of how you came to start growing in your awareness for the environmental impact of the practice of anesthesia. Well, that actually started in Germany. So for example, while I'd say in North America, smoking is a very unsexy thing, okay? So the society frowns on smoking. In Germany, that's the case for being environmental. So if you are not environmental, that's a big social no-no. And I think it comes from the fact that Germany is a country which has about 83 million inhabitants right now on a very small space. And so things like waste and pollution are surfacing much quicker. So you feel the impact of that much more readily than if you're in a big space. For example, like Canada, Alberta, the province I live in, for example, is two and a half times the size of Germany. And we've down barely are scratching four million inhabitants in there. Okay. And so you have lots of space. Mm -hmm. And so especially if you produce trash, it vanishes and you'll never see it again. And so the government has uh, not really had to implement any rules on waste segregation and avoiding waste altogether. For example, back in Germany, I had one trash can that was only emptied every two weeks. And if I produced more trash than one trash can full, then I'd either have to pay to get extra trash bags to be able to dispose of it. But what I also had to do was I had to separate my waste into recycling. And it wasn't just that I had one recycling bag where I put all my recycling into. No, there were actually, I had seven different trash cans in my house where I separated waste already. And then when I further took it to the recycling facility, which I had to do myself, I usually had to split those seven bags one more time to end up at about 14, 15 different elements of recycling wow. that were actually then followed up through. So, so what are maybe a couple of the groups of segregation when you're separating waste? So, for example, already when you look at to the paper, you will have paper, regular paper, which could be newspapers, regular paper, anything. But cardboard is already something totally separate from that. And then when you go into glass, for example, you had green glass, brown glass, white glass, and that was all separated from one another. Mm -hmm. Then when you had metals, aluminum would be a totally different stream than the other metals. Then you had electronic waste and the different plastics also. You had soft plastics, hard plastics that were separated right at the outset. So it was a good education, let's put it that mm -hmm. way, into why this is important. And also the government itself in Germany subsidized very many what I call green initiatives like solar energy, for example. Germany is a country where the sun doesn't shine a lot and yet Germany is the world leader in solar energy. Right? It's just really? because um, wow. the government subsidizes that a lot. Okay. And uh, also the government, you know, after the nuclear disaster in Japan, a few 10 years ago, 12 mm -hmm. years ago, Germany had decided to completely get out of nuclear energy. Mm -hmm. right? And nuclear energy was already kind of like the green alternative to the coal-powered um, energy that they had before. Yeah. So the renewable energy sources are heavily promoted in Germany. And it's just a general mental state of mind that you 
adopt when you live in Germany. Okay, yeah. so being green is something that comes natural to you. Right. And so when I came to Canada, I was, I'm not going to say I was appalled, but I was shocked uh, how little people cared about this. And these are all good people. You know, these are good people who just have never really come into contact with the idea that you would have to do something to preserve the environment. Right. Interesting. So when did you begin to grow an awareness of the practice of anesthesia okay. and the environmental impact there. Yeah, that was interesting. It's data around the impact, especially of our inhalational anesthetics, was already available towards the end of the 90s, early 2000s, when I was just beginning my career in anesthesia. So I started anesthesia in 1998, and already there data was available. However, I never really came across it until around 2007, when I was already practicing in Canada, and I read up on the articles a little bit and was shocked. Our one vapor, which is called desflurane, for example, has a dramatic greenhouse gas impact. One OR day, for example, if I use it for seven hours at a rather high fresh gas flow of two liters per minute, which is sadly still the standard for many practicing anesthesiologists, I produce environmental impact as if I drove from the North Cap in Norway all the way down to Cape Town in South Africa. So a distance that Google Maps says will take about 211 hours to drive, I can produce in seven hours of anesthesia time by using that gas. Wow. So, that is incredible. It is. It is. It is incredible. <laughs> yes. That is a good word for it. So I knew that we had to change our perception. And it is really interesting if you look at healthcare because we strive to do better by our patients. It is our calling. It is why pretty much all the people who are in healthcare are in healthcare to do well by their patients. However, we, I think, have lost track of trying to look at the big picture, what is going on. Our focus on the individual has become so great that I sometimes will say, it's like we're not even looking through a magnifying glass in our patient anymore. We're actually looking through the electron microscope into our patient and our field of vision has become extremely narrow. Mm -hmm. So. For example, that in anesthesia, we're using extremely potent greenhouse gases to provide anesthetics for our patients is actually a sad joke, right? Because on the one hand, we are doing well by our individual patient. On the other hand, we are heavily contributing to the environmental crisis, which ultimately is threatening for all of mankind. Yeah, that's very interesting. And this is kind of touches on something Rakesh and I were discussing at length last night, which is in the United States, there's a sort of a hardwired cultural distinctive where a lot of what Americans pride themselves on is the, the individualism. It's been called the land of opportunity. Like you can come here and you can do whatever you want to do, you as a person. The American dream. That's right. And, and it's in many cases kind of divorced from a more community-oriented, others-oriented mindset at times. I'm interested, have you, have you perceived that dynamic at all as you've practiced in Canada and come down to the States on occasion for... Oh, I see it every day in medicine, I have to say. And you know what, ultimately there is nothing wrong with the American dream per se. The one big problem is that the American dream in the sense that an individual can use every opportunity she or he has to achieve dreams meets its limits when you look at the world population. All the things we do in our everyday lives would not be overly dramatic if we had less than three billion people on this planet. But we are by now burning through I'm not sure, have you ever heard of the term of the resource turnover day? No, I haven't. So the planet, if you will, will be able to produce a certain amount of resources per year. And until around 1980, the planet was able to produce more every year than humanity used. Mm. Now, ever since 1980, we consume more than the planet is able to replenish every year. By now, the Earth turnover day, so what the Earth can produce 
every year before we basically go into its bank, its reserves. Worldwide, on average, is around mid-August by now. But if you look at the U.S. and Canada in particular, we're early February. So oh U.S. and Canada, basically, by February, we've burned through the resources the planet can replenish for one year. And then the rest of the year, we basically live on reserves. Reserves being the surplus of other countries, essentially. Well, well what the Earth has to give, right? Okay. And so we are, we are exploiting the planet mercilessly right now. And ultimately, it is leading to a complete health crisis. I'm not sure if you're aware, but like the United Nations points out that global warming, the climate change, and all the things that go with it are the most serious threats to human health in the 21st century. And something that actually cannot be and should not be ignored any longer. Mm-hmm. Interesting. With regards to you beginning to be aware of these things, you're getting familiar with this research in the late 90s and 2000s. Talk a little bit about how you have started to um, discuss it with your peers and integrate these principles into your own practice to to be more cognizant of these of these things. Okay, so the first thing I really did was change my own practice. And I think that's where it starts. You always have to start with yourself and see how you can change your own practice before you can even ask others to consider changing their practice. And so I changed my own practice and I fortunately found it wasn't hard. It wasn't hard at all. I will confess that I loved using desflurane up until the day I read about its impact. And I loved using nitrous oxide, which is another big bad boy in this whole discussion. And I started reading a few papers, uh, some that had come out out of the U.S. actually. There are some phenomenal doctors in the U.S. who have done a lot of groundbreaking research in that area. And by names like Susan Ryan out of San Francisco, who's since retired, or Jody Sherman out of Princeton. They have done a lot of good work and there are articles to read on this. And so I read those and became more interested. And what I did for myself in 2007 when I read the first literature on that, so I quit using Desperane overnight. And I know that that's a step that many anesthetists are very scared of because Desperane is perceived, particularly in a society where the lean body weight is getting less and less associated with our patient population. Desflurane is still said to be the one that will provide quickest wake-up time because it doesn't enrich in adipose and fat tissue. Uh, while Sevoflurane, for example, which is the most commonly used one worldwide and which also has our lowest environmental impact, actually enriches in adipose tissue. So people are afraid that if they switch, especially on the obese patients, they can't wake them up as quickly. So many studies have showed that all you have to do is become really an expert in understanding how to use the vapor, and then you will basically achieve the same wake-up times. Like a pure Desflurane user can not wake up their patient any quicker than I can wake up mine by using sevoflurane, no matter what the body mass index of the patient is. So I had changed my own practice and found it to be very easily doable. It really is very easy to do. Like it's nothing that anybody needs to be afraid of that will impact their practice in any way. The same for using nitrous oxide. Nitrous oxide is the gas that we've had longest ever since really almost for 100 years we've had nitrous oxide right now. It usually was called laughing gas before and really hadn't entered anesthesia as much as it is or was then for a while. It is fortunately declining right now, but worldwide nitrous oxide still has the biggest greenhouse gas impact of all our gases and is also the number one ozone depleting substance in the atmosphere right now. So I basically changed my own practice and decided now it's time to reach out to others. And so the first thing I was able to do was in our residency training program, we give lectures to the junior residents coming in and I was able to give the lecture on inhalational anesthesia. And so where the lecture before had been focusing a little bit on the effects of inhalational anesthetics for our patients, 
I only brushed over that initially and said, you know what, there's many things that you read in books and I'm not gonna bore you with stories about how the physics and how you produce these and what they do because you have read all that in the books anyway. So I'll tell you about the things that I think you need to know. And that's what the impact of these gases are on the environment and how to mitigate those in your own practice, right? Mm -hmm. And there are many ways to do that. First of all, it's the choice of the volatile, like I mentioned before, but you also can do things like running minimal fresh gas flows because there are many things that we're taught, particularly in the US, for example, if I take sevoflurane, sevoflurane is, as I mentioned, the most commonly used vapor worldwide. However, when it was introduced in the 90s, there was a debate about a chemical substance that was produced when sevoflurane interacted with the chemical absorbent that is supposed to extract CO2 from the system. Okay, And so a substance called compound A was produced, which in rat models had been shown to be nephrosokidney toxic. And so the US was the first country to put out a guideline that you needed a minimal fresh gas flow that accompanied the use of sevoflurane to wash the compound A out of the system so it would not remain within the patient. Now, the literature that led to that decision is heavily disputed and we're actually, our group is about to release a meta-analysis to show that there's most likely nothing to worry about, that you can use sevoflurane in every fresh gas flow. Most countries actually saw this evidence and by the late 90s, early 2000s, had abandoned all fresh gas flow recommendations for sevoflurane. The US even itself went back in 1997 to regulate the recommendation from two liters down to one liter. And, but countries like Canada, for example, still remain with a two liter fresh gas flow recommendation. Now this is only a recommendation also based on outdated data and we know really from literature evidence and also how our absorbents today, which don't even produce compound A anymore with sevoflurane, that there is no danger to our patients. Mm -hmm. Yet the teaching persists and a lot of anesthetists, like I was even speaking to colleagues last night who said, I still can't get over the fact that I'm supposed to use sevoflurane at less than two liters. It's, it's basically ingrained in the minds of a lot of people that use it. And so yeah. this is where we have to then start affecting change. And of course it starts with teaching the next generation, but also reaching out to our colleagues who've been in practice for many years and saying, you know what? I understand that you're doing it for all the right reasons, but these reasons actually turn out to be non-reasons, okay? Mm -hmm. So you can and you should change your practice. What would you say to the clinicians out there who say, desflurane is my favorite and I don't want you to take it from me because I feel like it's the best for my patient and all of your postulations about what may or may not be true make me uncomfortable when I think about, I want to make sure that I'm doing what's best for my patient. It's totally understandable, like, especially if you've been in practice for a while and is your go-to vapor. It's a sentiment that is completely understandable, yet you have to try to see the bigger picture here, right? And I can only encourage every practicing anesthesiologist, if you are able to practice as a specialist anesthesiologist, a change to sevoflurane or to isoflurane is not beyond you. Mm -hmm. It is something you can do with ease. It is something where you will be uncomfortable initially because you're doing something that is outside of your comfort zone right now. You're using a different vapor, and yet this is something that every practicing anesthesiologist really can achieve with ease. It's just something that you would need to want to do. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about the special interest group which you've started within Azure. What is a special interest group and what uh, motivated you to use this platform to continue to get the word out? As I said, it was it started with the residents that I was starting to teach and I started giving lectures on this topic too. And fortunately I was, for example, invited by colleagues out of Azra um, who practice in New York in the Hospital for Special Surgery to come and give grand rounds as a visiting scholar. And so 
all the lectures I gave were very well received. And so people are encouraging me and saying, you know what, I think you are promoting an important message and more people have to hear about this because we just don't know about this. Mm -hmm. And it is a topic, while it is published in literature, there's so much literature to read that most people have skimmed over it. So it was more something that, for example, I can only claim I stumbled over it by accident. It wasn't that I actually sought out to see if there was literature on this. I stumbled over it by accident. And when I read it, that's where I tried to find more. And I found that there was not much out there. So in this term of trying to reach out to colleagues, two years ago at the Azra Spring Meeting in San Francisco, I spoke to some of my direct colleagues and Dr. Bansui, who has been really long-standing faculty in Azra for a while, said, you know what, why don't we actually start, see if we can start a special interest group about this, because the anesthetic with the lowest environmental footprint as we know it right now, even though there's no hard evidence to show it, but by all logic it is so, it's just providing a regional anesthetic. So avoiding general anesthesia altogether and using the specialty of regional anesthesia to provide nerve blocks mm -hmm. and to either completely avoid general anesthesia altogether and do this basically with maybe awake or just sedation or even if we use a regional anesthetic and general anesthesia, we can run the general anesthetic at a much lower rate than we would without the regional anesthetic. And so we, we presented it to the president, Asukumar Bhavanendran, um, and he uh, was actually quite intrigued by our idea of starting a special interest group. He said, this is a very important topic. I totally agree. I encourage you to go ahead. And so we sought out members. Uh, Azra requires a certain number of members to come forward to say, I will support the creation of this special interest group. And so the special interest group was created in November of 2017. It was a little bit of a slow start because obviously, as I said, this is not a topic that everybody's familiar with, but it is a topic that is really catching fire here right now. So within one and a half years, we had our membership grow from the original founding 20 to now 351. Uh, so people are taking notice. So with about 4,000 Azra members, it's almost 10% of the Azra membership who are members of our special interest group right now. And this morning, for example, we had our second meeting of the Spanish special interest group. and. The room was full. The room was full of people, and I was very happy to see this. So I see that more and more people are taking notice and are coming forward with issues like the, all the disposables in their hospital, and coming forward with things that are being basically mandated by management for perceived financial interests, not really patient interests or uh, global health at large. Yeah, makes sense. Interesting. So if I'm a, a young physician and I'm interested in learning more about this. Maybe I'm not a member of Azra or this is all new to me and the environmental impact of anesthetic gases is something that I would love to learn more about. What kind of resources out there might you recommend as far as starting this learning process? For every young anesthesiologist, there are actually some nice documents right within the U.S. that they can start with. So the ASA, the American Society of Anesthesiologists, has a green anesthesia task force which put out guidelines on the practice, which are really good. They're very good guidelines. They've been updated once ever since they were created first. So I think 2017 is the most current version of these ASA guidelines. And they're a fantastic starting point to read them and to get an idea of what's going on. And ultimately, by now, a literature search will easily yield many articles mm -hmm. uh, containing a topic. And if nothing else, you can always shoot me an email and okay, I'll be happy to get you started or to guide you in the right direction. And where can listeners reach you via email? What's the best email address? Um, so yeah, the easiest way to reach me is just by my last name, Ozelsel, O-Z-E-L-S-E-L, -E at ualberta.ca. Okay. And we'll put that in the show notes yeah. as well.
So no, I'll be happy. As I said, this is a passion of mine, and I think currently I do think it is the most important topic in healthcare for sure. Maybe the most important topic in politics worldwide. There's this young girl out of Sweden that I'm sure that a lot of your listeners will have heard of, Greta Thunberg, who just recently was even nominated, I think, for the Nobel Prize. She is a 16-year-old, highly functional autistic girl who has done amazing talks, really just, they come from her heart. There are a lot of TED Talks out there on the net. So Google Greta Thunberg, TED Talks, you will hear some amazing presentations of a young woman, you know, who talks about the environmental crisis and is going on and how she as a young woman cannot understand why not everybody is in panic mode mm -hmm. and trying to really solve the most blatant and obvious issue that the world faces today. Yes, it's, it's very sobering when you put it in those terms. Well, Timur, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. As we bring things to a close here, I'd love to hear just a brief anecdote of a time for you when you considered all of the, I mean, you've, you, your expertise spans international borders and the different fellowships that you've done, and obviously this focus in green anesthesia, you've accomplished a lot. Maybe you could just zoom in for one minute on a time or uh, a place where you said, in reflecting on some of the things you've done, this is something that I'm proud of. This is something that I and I'm grateful that I've been able to bring attention to or to accomplish with my career and my vocation. Well, I think there's not even a single time, I have to say. I think it is the growing. Like this morning when we went into the special interest group meeting and I saw all the people sitting there, I felt a moment of pride. I have to say, wow, this is, this is going well. I have to say, this is, you know, it's, there is no guarantee we will succeed in our mission, but we have to start somewhere. And communication and education is the really only good venue I know of to achieve ongoing success and actually even promote success in our mission to raise awareness and to change the ways we live and we practice. And so I don't even have to go very far back. You know, I've had a few of those moments, but this morning uh, when I saw the whole room full of people who were willing to take the next step forward was a very proud moment for me. Yeah, that's gonna be really encouraging as you consider what the future may look like for the practice of anesthesia and the cognizance of what green conscious anesthesia looks like, that, that it gives you some sense of hope, I would imagine. Yeah, exactly. Great. Well, Dr. Timur Azelsel, thank you very much for joining us Justin, on, thanks the, for having on the Anesthesia Success Podcast. It's been a pleasure. Absolutely. Thanks. Hey, Justin here. This may shock you to learn, but I am actually not a full-time podcaster. I also run a financial planning company called Quantify Planning, where I work closely with anesthesia and pain docs to build and implement customized financial plans. If you're interested in working with a financial planner who knows many of the ins and outs of your profession, shoot me an email or head on over to quantifyplanning.com for more information. If you're a resident or fellow, I can also offer you a free student loan analysis if you're interested, but there might be a waiting list, so check out the link over there to see. If you're interested in learning more about the topics we discussed today, head over to anesthesiasuccess.com to join our community of residents and attendings and others to ask a question or get more free resources. If and only if you like this episode, please leave us a review and subscribe. Thank you very much for listening to the Anesthesia Success Podcast.